everyone into the stream in honor of theaters closing and a remaining 2020 of streaming content do you remember the first thing you streamed on netflix i'm katie rich and i did not remember i had to look it up but when i looked it up i found out it is the diving bell and the butterfly which i'm pretty sure i did not watch in its entirety on netflix i only saw it once in theaters i don't know it was a good movie I'm Matt Patches, and the, apparently the first thing I watched on Netflix streaming was Julie Delpy's romantic comedy Two Days in Paris, that classic film co-starring Adam Goldberg. I think they're like a couple in New York or something. I don't remember. Are but they it was not so in Paris? Cute. I thought maybe he's called from, Two Days in Paris. <laughs> I guess they go to Paris. I don't remember. I guess I got to go back and watch it again. Yeah. It's been 11 years. Uh, of David the Seven, and I thought it was Party Down uh, because I did not have stars, and Party Down was on Netflix early on. But it turns out, if you look it up, it was Sphere, mm. the classic Sphere on brand answer. I, I'm David Ehrlich, and I cannot believe how on brand the first like ten things I watched on Netflix streaming are. Uh, allow me to just briefly read the titles in uh, chronological order that I watched on Netflix. I started with Chris Marker's San Soleil. Wow. And then went to Guy Madden's Careful. Then went to Nagisa Oshima's Taboo. James Gray's Two Lovers. Eternity and a Day. The Age of Innocence. A Light Stop Off at When Harry Met Sally. Fargo. My Left Foot. The Karate Kid. Caro Diario. Carlito's Way. Gloomy Sunday. Ratcatcher. The King of Mash. Kado- I mean, it goes That's on. A true, so a true Dave I, answer I, to our lightning. I finally, <laughs> I finally get, I, uh, five months after I started, I finally get to Veronica Mars, season one, The Girl Next Door. <laughs> and then it was over. Yeah. Uh, how many of those titles are ever are even on Netflix anymore? My guess is be oh, very few. Very few. Fargo very actually few. just came back to Netflix this month oh. to cannily capitalize on both the new season of Fargo on FX and also Francis McDormand's Oscar buzz for Nomadland. And John Carroll Lynch's uh, role in Trial of Chicago 7, as you pointed out on uh, on Twitter, David. She's married to John Carroll Lynch. These snappy lightning uh, rounds. Why <laughs> through some quick Ooh. answers cares gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room fine i can hear you now dimitri clear and plain and coming through fine i'm coming through fine too eh good then well then as you say we're both coming through fine good well it's good that you're fine and and i'm fine i agree with you it's great to be fine it's 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 awesome Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 320. It is Pandemic 30, and it is the week of Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. That is the day the 1971 The French Connection premiered in the U.S., presumably in a theater full of people eager mm-hmm. to see the movie on a big screen. What if it premiered to no one? What if no one, it was very artful in that they, they invited no one and it just played in an empty theater? That doesn't really seem on theme for The French Connection. No, it's definitely a crowd pleaser. I feel like there was a time when the French Connection was on Netflix recently, actually, to bring it back to the lightning round question, which Patches loved being long so much. All right. Every second. David, here we have a review or two, maybe one. Yeah. I mean, uh, first, I just want to call attention to uh, the dulcet tones of my voice. Uh, You may Mm. notice long grief listeners, especially those of you who uh, couldn't understand what I was saying due to the audio quality anyway. Uh, I have now, I received my microphone, all $50 of it, from the fine, fine, fine company, which I had definitely heard of before it popped up on my Amazon scroll. 
Uh, and uh, I should be sounding like I am talking to you from inside your own skull. You right are now. making a big promise here without having tested it and hoping that it works out. I have tested I you used sound it on okay a, uh, I used it during a New York Film Festival panel on Friday. And, oh. And oh, I watched that because be you promoted me. it approximately two minutes before it started on Twitter. Um, and I and I jumped. I, can't, on the I honestly and can't it. tell if you're being facetious or not. I am not. What, what do you mean? Yeah, you did watch it. Go because you were saying because I tweeted. Well, okay, let me. Before it started. Well, I was ribbing <laughs> you for not promoting it with ample time for anyone to actually make sure, time sure. to watch it. And so, in some form of spite, I decided to jump on the call and lasted about five minutes. So, uh, oh wow, was, uh, uh, very engaging. I'm sure there's a recording yeah. of it for anyone who wants to submit themselves to that. But uh, there who was going to like critics. write a note in their diary like three days from now? I'll watch. Dan what were you guys talking about? Like Rotten Tomatoes or something? That's what I, I saw part of it about Rotten Tomatoes. It was like, a conversation. I am checking about- out of this. It was a conversation about the it was less for for people who work in the biz than yeah. uh, the norms out there, but I'm it was it was indeed. about uh, the current and future of online film discussion. It was with representatives from Letterbox, Rotten Tomatoes, and Movie. I thought it was and interesting. You, the person who yelled and me, the king of Letterbox, the conversation, king of Letterbox. Yeah, we never really talked about that article where Moving you claimed the king of Letterbox. <laughs> Moving. How do you on. feel about that? We, I feel that we have several reviews, and even though I have uh, proclaimed that we're only going to be reading one at a time, uh, I have my new microphone now, <laughs> and uh, hopefully people have increased tolerance for my voice, so we can get through a couple of these Is quickly, the and then issue? maybe we'll revert. Sure. Uh, but also, as Katie so memorably said in our lightning round segment this episode, who cares? Honestly, where do you people have to be? The longer this podcast goes, the less people are listening to Trump talk on Twitter. In sn- yeah, see? We're helping people avoid at, doom scrolling. Bo- right, except for Robert Frost, who is just itching to get back to his dear leader. Uh, it's about nonsense, about how he has confronted the coronavirus head-on and is now uh, now finally understands it and shown the courage to completely ignore all the science. Anyway, um, Ryan, well, we did read Ryan Robinson's review. Uh, I promised that we would read Francis Adrian's review, who says, Film criticism dessert. I wrote a review years ago full of lavish praise and never felt a need to update it, even to save Dave Seven. Wow. <laughs> but with the gauntlet thrown in recent weeks, I've decided to test the limits of David's willingness to barter airtime for five-star reviews. Mm. Editors note, they don't necessarily have to be five-star reviews. Uh, we prefer them that way. But uh, listen, we, we, are, we are not filtering out all the fake news here. Uh, anything that you guys read, write to us rather, we'll read. I was wondering if you guys would be giving the Broken Hearts Gallery any love. I'm not sure what the release situation is in the States since it's out here down under. Shh, they're not on to me with this US iTunes account. Keep it that way. But it was a delightful gem written and, dap- written and adeptly directed by a woman with two Australian actors as the leads, the rarity, including the relentlessly charming Geraldine Viswanathan of Blockers. It even features an utterly unrecognizable Philippa Sue of Hamilton doing the exact opposite of her Eliza role, including singing badly. Hmm, that's acting. I'm not usually a fan of rom-coms, but this melted my cynical heart. Give it an hour and a half of your time when it's out. Not a plug on your podcast. Be a terrible shame if something happened to this five-star review, though. Dot, dot, dot. Original Fighting in the War Room, oh, the original review read, Fighting in the War Room is a brownie among podcasts, dense, gooey, good for the soul, and never quite leaving you full. Did anybody see the Broken Hearts Club? The Broken Hearts Gallery, rather? No. No, it only came out in theaters. Did it really only come out in theaters? Yeah. I thought, um, I thought it was yeah, we did it. We did a we did a lightning round question about it. Uh, we did. Week it came out. 
about our old relationships uh, because it was like yeah it was like the wide release that week but uh i did it i did not have an opportunity to see it otherwise so as far as i know i mean it seems really exactly as our reviewer described sweet i like um what's her name geraldine this one and Nathan. yeah so good so good in bad education so good in bad education uh, but really, especially brilliant and blockers, and truly one of the great films of our time. But, uh, yeah, I didn't um, see this film because it only played at American theaters. I don't think it's out on VOD or anything yet. Well, I guess you just want yet. the movie theater industry to die if you're not willing to risk your life to go. Uh... Yeah, man, those NATO talking points, uh, bizarre. Anyway, uh, in uh, we read in Corky's review, which was taking my microphone to task. The Hades stand says, "Let David talk about Hades." Four stars oh i was going to leave one Didn't star we, we definitely well, did <laughs> we did this the haiti stand may have written this review before okay. last week wow. haiti stand patience we can't we can't like hades hades himself does not display much patience in the game but uh we don't know if the amount of time we allotted to the game Hades on Nintendo Switch is sufficient to appease the gods, let alone the Hades stand. So I'm going to read a very brief <laughs> review. Anyway, I was going to leave one star, but I think I can make my point less obnoxiously with four stars. Let David talk about Hades. Once my demands are met, I will bump it up to five stars. Oh, also, I'm leaving this so Dave doesn't get sacrificed, but mostly the Hades thing. Um, I expect that five-star review coming soon. Yeah. Uh, but if you feel like there was not enough Hades talk for you, please let us know uh, and we will make sure to devote a future segment to the game Hades, which mm-hmm. I'm still playing relentlessly. And finally, no. Rachel Tonys says, oh no, we have two more reviews. Uh, Rachel Tonys says, best podcast ever. Katie, David, Patches, Dave, thank you for the best make- making the best podcast ever. I've Woo. been a listener for about two years now and I've loved, e- yeah, but in fairness, has Rachel Tonys listened to every podcast ever? I call yes, her she has. time no, she, yeah, she's a, a question. She is a flawless expert in this category. Yeah, this is coming from and, a lot of research. Uh, well, and I wanted to quiz her on what episodes of the Billions cast she's heard. And if she remembers them all, <laughs> so I could put this to the test. I have loved every episode I've heard so far. As a college student studying film at Emerson, I hope, I found it helpful listening to your fighting because it has somehow led me to learn how to form my own opinions on movies. I've noticed you all have been talking more about TV shows lately, which I've been loving, and I am liking the video game talk, too. Katie, I always love hearing your opinions, and my movie taste is most like yours! Exclamation mm. point. David, you have a great Twitter account, and I always look forward to your letterbox <laughs> reviews. Uh, Patches, I'm always curious about what you're reading, and I haven't read your Josh Trank piece, but I'm very excited to. What? Dave, I enjoy- it's been up for months! <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Thank you. She's excited. I mean, I know, yeah, be hyped. Listen. She, she's at college right now. She's just trying to not die. Uh, things, things to do. Uh, I enjoy hearing your views on pop culture, and I'm always excited to hear your music picks for the transitions. That was in reference to Dave. You all do such a wonderful job. P.S. David, promote the podcast on your Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I started listening because you mentioned the podcast once years ago on your Twitter. See? Uh, the power you, you have. All I wanted with that tweet was to get Rachel to listen to it. It was successful. Yeah. We don't we're, need we're more not even, We're not even asking for a shout-out in your letterbox profile, which would obviously be the coup. <laughs> Critic at IndieWire slash co-podcast host at Fighting in the War Room. Anyway, no. PSS Katie. I love Little Gold Men too. PSSS. I hope you're all staying safe. Wear a mask and vote. Uh, Patches has already voted. 
for Donald Trump and the rest of us will be voting if we haven't already. <laughs> uh, and I, we are all wearing our masks. Uh, right now, inside our homes. Very helpful. <laughs> inside our homes as we record this. And finally, Jack D.W. says the truth about Ehrlich. This is such a great show. I recently started listening and I'm now hooked. Fun, in-depth discussions, and I appreciate the pandemic check-ins for some solid recommendations. Many other reviews break down opinions on each of the hosts. Let me just say, each host is incredible and complements each other's respective styles perfectly. As a mildly inappropriate confession, I'll also mention that I find Ehrlich... <laughs> this is a first. Uh, I can't even read this with a straight face. This is how you know he doesn't read these ahead of time. Yes, but I also... I have to imagine I'm being trolled, uh, that I find Ehrlich insanely attractive. Did my <laughs> wife write this? Probably not even. No. Uh, others, may, <laughs> others may call him withholding, but it's really a discerning taste that he's happy to vocally defend. I know he's straight and married, but his voice, good microphone or not, and hot takes are very sexy. I know you're lying because my voice is objectively foul, but uh, I, I appreciate that all the same. You're very kind for saying so. Uh, and my self-esteem could use the boost. Thank you all for leaving reviews. Please go on Fighting in the War Rooms on iTunes. Fighting in the War Room, singular, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. on iTunes. And leave us a review, good, bad, uh, or whatever that last one was. Much appreciated. Um, and we will read them on the show. Uh, thanks. Um, we're going to ring the, the gong because not only did Dave, Dave see the movie for this segment, everyone saw the movie. I truly am not sure the last time this happened, especially if they're weird, fractured viewing landscape. But we all saw Dick Johnson is Dead, which is on Netflix now. I assume it's global because it's a Netflix, uh, you know, Netflix owns it. So everyone can watch Dick Johnson is Dead. It is a movie by Kirsten Johnston, who is a uh, Document, documentary filmmaker. It won, I believe, a prize at Sundance, maybe several prizes. Um, it debuted on Netflix last weekend. It is her making a documentary about her father as he is showing some signs of dementia. He's 87, so he is kind of by definition nearing the end of his life. And it is it both has this kind of big conceptual hook where she is imagining these scenarios in which he could die, including getting hit by an air conditioner, falling down the stairs, getting like stabbed in the neck by a piece of lumber on the streets of New York City, which is especially <laughs> vivid. Um, but then all behind the scenes process of, um, you know, her talking to him, move, him moving to New York to live with her and them working on this project together, which is maybe in some ways the most moving part of it to me that she looked at her dad knowing she didn't have much longer with him and was like, let's make a movie together. Dad, I'm going to like put you in this fantasy dream sequence of heaven with a lay around your neck and like throw ice cream in your face. And we're going to have a great time. Um, This movie's really wonderful. I had like heard raves about it basically since Sundance and found it basically exactly as moving, but also kind of joyful and life affirming, but, but clear eyed and not any of the like, it's not hokey in any way, uh, even though it's about this incredibly, you know, moving father and daughter bond. Um, I, I basically can't recommend it highly what? enough. Someone else should uh, be smarter about it. For the people in the room who've watched this recently, I saw this at Sundance back in January. So okay. um, that was 800 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> why does she want to... What, what does she say in the movie about recreating, or not even recreating, creating deaths for her father? We, uh, as you mentioned, Katie, we see kind of gruesome versions where he gets impaled and smashed. We also see, I believe we see a funeral for his 
I mean, he's in a casket and people are attending his funeral, but we also see him in the audience through the trickery of, of editing in some level. Um, what, like, why does she want to recreate his death? Dave, you want to take that? Um, yeah, I don't think it's she wants to recreate his death. I think it starts as a method of her coping with it. And she and I, the, the narrative of the film, uh, sort of about halfway through, uh, click in the missing piece, which is I didn't see Camera Person, uh, her 2016 uh, documentary, but um, the it, it has uh, some pieces of her mom who also uh, went out through Alzheimer's um, and went sort of all the way to the late stages where she wasn't able to communicate. And uh, at some one point in the film, you see some footage of her mom and she's like, you know, I, you know, been shooting stuff all my life, but that's like some of the only footage I have of my my mom and I don't have anything from when she was like full. Mm -hmm. And so what begins is like a cool project, uh, a cool project. What begins with like a hook where she's like, he's a psychologist and I'm a filmmaker and I'm like, let's make a film about your death. And he said, yes. And that's sort of like, we're off to the races sort of reveals itself what it is, I think, as it goes on. And some of the pieces that could seem more, you know, filmmaker or hokey, like the deaths actually end up being like some of the releases of the film mm-hmm. uh, sort of mesh into that funeral you're talking about, Patches, where it's, um, you know, he gets to come out at the end of his own funeral, but it just that because of his age and the reality of it and the age of his friends and family, they all have to sort of um, confront the fact that he's going to die while he's still there. And it affects them all in sort of different ways. There's some like heartbreaking scenes in this movie because it just doesn't look away from any of the topics. And because Dick at the center of it seems pretty game to discuss things, uh, even as he's, you know, sort of slipping away. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, what I love the most about this movie. Um, If it's not a clear theme for me as a a person, um, I like mundane things. I like stories about (laughs) people who are average or have just lived normal lives. And uh, we don't see movies about those types of people. We often go to the movies and people often make movies about extraordinary people. And here's Dick Johnson. I think he's a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. He's just some guy who's been living his life joyfully. And this is a celebration of his, of his life and like going deep into just some random person's life. Like why, why no one would make a movie about this unless you know, the filmmaker was related to them and they had a camera and it just happened to all kind of come together. And that feels really special because it's, it's, it almost reminds me of, um, didn't Michael Caine throw, uh, his own funeral in, um, the weatherman that Nick Cage movie <laughs> um, that, Boy. that no one remembers. Um, that, that Gore Verbinski, Gore Verbinski movie. That's a good, that's a good, yeah. um, it, it reminds me of that in a way, like let's have a celebration of life before we always mm-hmm. devote so much time and energy to people after they die. Like why not look back at this man's life, his beautiful marriage. Um, uh, he, he reconnects with like a, not a lost love, but like somebody he had a relationship college with crush, I think college crush. Like that's so cute. And that's she was adorable. married to a mortician. So she's got the, I think, I think he was a mortician, but she's got all this insight about like confronting death and they have this, they're, they're so funny together. They're like these people who've known each other for ages and you know, they're 
old people, but they're still people, which is also something that feels kind of rare to see in a movie. Well, especially I, I, I would love to know how this movie plays post COVID where we have so devalued the lives of, of elderly people like this administration, this world that we live in half the country at times it seems like does not give a shit about old people dying. what are you talking about we all just spent uh god knows how much taxpayer money to uh make sure that one elderly person was able <laughs> to right. survive the That's true. Pandemic. but I, I i it's a beautiful idea to just like celebrate the elderly the the vastness of their life but also celebrate the moment like one thing i love about the movie too is that uh dick winds up moving in with um, the family into a New York apartment because he just shouldn't be living alone in his house anymore. And like how life goes on for him then, like he's still making big changes in his life this late into the game as they're exploring his death. Um, and I just love them becoming roommates too. Like that is, mm-hmm. that's just a fun. David, what do yeah, you think I like of how this? You, you said exploring his death, like a movie trailer voice. It's what they do. <laughs> well, explore, this yeah. fall on NBC, exploring his death. Um, I I like Patches have not seen this movie since January uh, which uh, feels yes like a very long time ago uh, I you know I enjoyed it immensely I think it's a brilliant concept that's that's done with a lot of wit and heart and empathy um, I did go into it especially because of my own experience you know with with my father uh, expecting a sort of emotional wrecking ball mm. and I remember i mean you know again i've only seen the movie the once and don't know how it would go if and when i hope i watch it again soon but uh, i remember being just more like you know ruminative about it um and and less deep in my feelings um and i think a little bit thrown by the his fate at the end of the movie and how Which they, we shouldn't they spoil right yeah and and uh and negotiating all of that um but it's uh, it's really powerful. I, I, I think it's a really, it, as Patches was saying, it confronts things that most movies would rather uh, distract you from, um, and it does so with a lot of grace. And I do remember feeling very tr- not that you know my experience was at all indicative or um, or you know setting the trend for what this is going to be like for anyone's life. But it did feel true to going through that with a parent, as I remembered it. Um, even if, you know, I wasn't able to have such a playful, um, and sort of bittersweet, uh, journey through that, that end stage of life with him. But, uh, yeah, it's a really, really beautiful movie. One of the best movies I've seen this year. Um, I do want to watch it again to get a a clear read on it. I didn't write even about it, uh, back at Sundance. Um, but it's very, very much worth your time on Netflix. Um, Dave, I don't know where the emotional stuff landed for you, but I found um, in the kind of fake funeral sequence we were talking about, just like the idea of being able to be in a room with the people that you love kind of celebrating you, like obviously staging your own funeral is a kind of unique circumstance, but just thinking the post COVID angle on it and like watching all these people be together and kind of helping each other through these difficult periods of life. I, I found that moving. Yeah. And it's good because I mean, it's contrasted very starkly where it's like the deaths that we see them create for that we see her create for him are all very sudden and he's alone. <clears throat> and this movie is really like a long drawn out process of death where she refuses to leave him alone. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really strong uh, 
perspective to take on it and she allows it to be personal but also sort of keep that overall uh background to it like it's one point they've already moved to new york and she's out walking with her dad and she sees like another old gentleman with a very similar gait but he's alone and she kind of stops following her dad and turns her camera on that person and so sort of what patches was saying about like even just discarding old people i would say even just people like the idea that at some point you know uh she she claims that her father's her best friend so at some point like your friends and your family there's this weird part of the population that isn't part of any of those venn diagrams and often they just get like left out and forgotten but like dick johnson if you you know look into a person you could maybe find just a kind dude doing his best trying not to get people to notice his weird feet it's a good movie to watch if the news and the world are bumming you out. Not because it won't make you think about things, but just it's about yeah. people and caring for them and, and especially caring for the people who you already love in your life, which is a nice thing to Java was mad she didn't get to see me cry because I went outside and watched the end on, on the balcony. Oh. Real men watch the ends of sad movies on their balconies. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll do a live viewing of Dick Johnson's Dead and we'll all get to watch Dave cry as a uh, fundraiser or something. That's a yes, fundraiser. Yeah. Well, David, I in some ways do want to talk about a Steve McQueen's Small Axe, uh, which is a five-film series, three of which played as part of the New York Film Festival, which Wait, I covered. Hold on. Did you just hearing you say that? It occurred to me. Is I know that the title Small Axe comes from a proverb um, or a saying. I don't know if proverb is the the right word. There's an expression. Uh, I wish I had what that expression was on the tip of my tongue. Um, but uh, is it also a pun? Do you think like small axe? Like these films are sort of. I mean, they're not really small. The- they're kind of full feature length for the most part. So, no, I think well, we're I talking know, I, about I, the act of the person in the movie. Yes, to oh, switch the narrative. Because see, all all the racial films, narratives. especially, uh, and maybe I should let you set the the quintology uh, up a little bit more before I interject. But especially Red, White, and Blue and Mangrove, which are two or three films we've seen so far, hinge on these small pivotal moments of change where someone from this community, uh, you know, All right. dares to, yeah. Well, saying we were going to talk about those movies, um, but <laughs> first of all, there are three films of a five-part series that uh, will be on Amazon later. And second of all, everyone will be able to watch them in November. So we'll talk about them then. And then third, uh, I was incredibly lucky to be able to cover the New York Film Festival remotely this year. It was you know, something I haven't been able to do in several years. Um, but also the entire process of covering a film festival, both for New York and TIFF, has felt really strange, uh, especially for something like this, where like, they're not really movies, they're going to be TV shows, but they're at a film festival. I don't know, like, how did the cognitive dissonance of this whole process work for you, David? 
If you are a big tree, we are a small axe. It's a Jamaican proverb famously popularized by Bob Marley. The dissonance of these film festivals was uh, pretty strong. Um, I am I am someone who really struggles to engage with things in the same way when I watch them at home. Um, sitting down on my couch and watching Nomadland with with my wife was uh, we really you know turned all the lights off. The baby was asleep. Put our phones away and engaged with it. And even that. Is, is really not the same for me, uh, but especially when I was watching something like with a little bit less focus, it all sort of unravels. Um, I, I do my best under professional circumstances when I'm watching things, but even mentally, if I'm just uh, watching something on a full screen, taking notes, it's still not the same. And so, yeah, I mean, and I think I, I speak for a lot of people who I've talked to about covering these events where it just felt exhausting in a way that film festivals often do you know, cumulatively by the time they're over. Uh, but the adrenaline of being there and running from thing to thing and seeing all these people, you know, and that sort of summer camp slash work vibe um, keeps you going for a while until you crash at like day five or six. Uh, and without that, you know, sitting at your desk, trying to fit in screenings in between dropping off your kid at daycare and picking up your kid from daycare, um, breaking them up into the movies, not the kids into small uh, viewing pockets. Um, it's, it's, yeah. Difficult, and I think it really tiring was my overall takeaway. Yeah, I mean, but, also just the- I mean, glad glad for the opportunity, and especially glad that you're writing about these things. You normally you're excited to write about them because you're in that bubble, and you think that maybe these movies will pop someday, and maybe it'll help them get distribution and so forth. But um, there is a little extra element this year, knowing that for Toronto, at least Canadian viewers, and for something like the New York Film Festival, anybody in the United States who wanted to could watch along with you. So they wouldn't have to wait for for something like uh, Tragic Jungle or Beginning or any of the other films that play the New York Film Festival to get distribution. Bless you. They could have, uh, they could watch, you know, shortly after those reviews were published um, and decide that to spend their virtual dollars right away based on what you were saying. So there, there it was an extra edge to that anyway. I hope that was happening because the feeling for me for so much this has been like, well, like the 15 critics who I'm talking to and I are getting to see this movie that I really care about. I guess more so for Toronto for Toronto because most of those movies were geoblocked to Canada. But like it feels like people are watching like the show of the president having COVID or all this other stuff. Like there's like even more distractions to the stuff that would normally have trouble breaking through to the real world. And um, I think Small Axe is coming very soon, so I hope it like will have its chance. But I, the, the the idea of covering these things into a void was pretty strong this year for me. Yeah, but I do I, I do think that part of it was that uh, they were only able to sell a number a certain number of virtual tickets for either of these festivals um, because of, for various reasons you know, bandwidth, but mostly because uh, I think a lot of the sales agencies behind these films and whatnot would not have allowed just like pure public access. And what's interesting sure. is that I don't. Not that I am like uh, on the pirate bay, if that's still a thing, all day long. But I don't believe there was any notable cases of piracy with these movies getting out there, which has something to do with their only being available to a limited audience. But um, yeah, so like even even though I think all the screenings were sold out in the case of the New York Film Festival, for the most part, even the more esoteric movies, it's still a small number of people who were able to watch along with us. Um, I was one of those people who bought a ticket to Nomadland, and then my friends are like, this is the only time we could play D&D. And I'm like, ah, shit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Nomadland for D&D? To play D&D? I did, yeah. Wow. You guys should have done we're going Nomadland to themed D&D. You could have been Francis McDormand. Well, we, we kind of are. They're, they're getting from Candlekeep to Avernus, and it's taking them for fucking ever. They're just, like, moseying around 
fucking with farmers and stuff. And from what I understand, that's, that's pretty close. Now. Can I uh, point out something similar to David Smolak's revelation is that I just put together that Walter Reed is the name of one of the major theaters at Philip Lincoln Center, in addition to being the hospital. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes, they actually <laughs> sequestered. They put him in differently. The, they took Trump to the movie theater and forced him to watch, <laughs> watched, the New York Film Festival Watch Nomadland, actually. It would probably do. He had to watch well. Nomadland. He had to sign 16 blank pieces of paper. And then, you know, we got him out what of the true film festival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if uh, if I if I get coronavirus and uh, experimental medical We've care, sent him to Walter Reed not, is not available to me. Please at least bring me to the Walter Reed movie theater so I can get this uh, man watch something in one of New York City's finest theaters. <laughs> Here at the end of this segment, it is October fifth, twenty twenty, at uh, seven forty eight p.m. Mountain Time, and I hope those are all good jokes we just made. Oh boy, yeah, that's true. Oh. Oh, I mean, who cares? Right <laughs> <laughs> Me, because I'm the one who has to cut things oh. out of the podcast you and you decide podcast? you care later. If David has coronavirus by the time this comes out, we're all going to feel... No, no then we definitely that, have to publish the whole thing. time for a pandemic check-in we're gonna to try to keep it tight katie's right we gotta keep it tight so each of us is gonna to try to recommend a thing or an issue or not recommend a thing as in my case maybe i don't know netflix released another true crime documentary and if this is your first time on the podcast weird first episode uh 320 but why not uh, 320 I, I baby Light up. Ooh. Yeah, that's that's what that means. Um, I, I tend to watch a lot of the net, Netflix uh, true crime things, and I just a lot of true crime in general. Uh, just, I don't know, it's a weird compulsion that I have, but since, I think, making a murder on Netflix spawned a whole bunch of explosion of Netflix uh, true crime, I've been kind of obsessed, and occasionally patches will follow me down the debate uh, hole of... How responsible is this true crime uh, to the victims, to the idea of, like, true crime? Do we need this? Is this just, uh, like, South Park would uh, deem it, I think, murder porn uh, for people who enjoy uh, that sort of thing? I want to talk about American Murder. It's the new hour-and-a-half-long documentary about the case of a missing woman and her two children in uh, Fraser, Colorado. And I was aware of this before it happened because I didn't know of it as a missing woman. I knew of it as a woman who had been murdered by her husband uh, and the kids. I was sort of unclear on exactly when they died, but I was aware that they were dead. Uh, The movie takes a suspense route uh, through this uh, story. And the cool thing that it does is it only uses uh, like firsthand materials. So interviews, uh, like text messages and uh, social media things uh, provided by the family of the victim and uh, the like videos from the police, body cams, uh, drone shots of uh, recovery when they find a crime scene and things like that. All of that is really cool. 
Uh, they do sort of like a text messaging back and forth to sort of build the idea of this woman texting with her friends about her relationship problems with her husband. The, I think, issue with this documentary and the reason why it ultimately sort of fell flat to me is as somebody who lives in the state and knew that this happened, uh, the narrative of people who already know of it is this guy had an affair and decided that his wife and children were in the way of his happiness and rather than deal with it like a normal person decided to kill them off and uh, didn't tell you know the woman he was having an affair with that he was planning anything but definitely did plan premeditate a murder of his wife and two children and i think the movie because it wants to be like a thrilling narrative <clears throat> really starts with like a whodunit and uh, slowly begins to un unveil uh, the character of the victims, uh, but waits until, I think, the second half or last third to really be like, and he was sort of emotionally abusive, and he was, like, withholding sex from her and working out a lot and, like, wouldn't answer her phone calls. And I feel like by the time we get to the big conclusion which is day, three days after she's disappeared, they charge him with murder. I'm like, shouldn't three this be days. the story? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> shouldn't this be the story of, hey, um, you know, the police did their job exactly like they were supposed to. Uh, things got investigated, but uh, domestic abuse is real, and we should have all noticed that this was going on with this guy, like somebody should have helped this woman, because that's how the movie ends. But it also feels disingenuous to spend half of the movie being like, we don't know what happened. Did she disappear? Was she murdered? And Did also, she run like, away with the kids? it's always the shifty husband. So if, as soon as you introduce <laughs> yeah, absolutely. the husband, like, that yeah, did yeah. it. Wait, so and the movie, like, the movie is trying to be, like, episodic, true crime in a way where it's like did this happen or it's it's it doesn't present a lot of because it's all from like first person procedurals first person accounts of things and because i guess we have three days of video footage to work with they draw out those three days throughout the whole story but they do that by like oh she's gone we don't know where she is oh let's flash back you know oh. she had lupus and like oh she had kids mm. and you know all these things and they don't get to the part of the flashback where it's like and for the past three years he's been emotionally abusive and her friends started noticing because she was telling them they don't get to that until after they've already arrested right. him in the, Hard to in unpack, the dual cutting narrative more more exactly more lift than this film probably wants to do it was structured like it's already the Amazon series that is based on the documentary that this Netflix thing is doing, wow. mm. which is my problem with like the Netflix uh, true crime documentary thing. It's like making a murderer. We learned to have like a faulty depiction of a bunch of the facts, but at least then you felt like you were getting a you know of a narrative of the facts that went from point a to point b and showed you where all the complexities were over like hours this one's like an hour and a half and it's all built to eventually get you to the conclusion that i think you should but i think it's super manipulative at the beginning uh which i mean i guess it has to be given its choice of material but maybe this is not because this woman 
uh, led, led a very active life on like Facebook and social media. They thought they had like a wealth of things when really they they didn't. The mm-hmm. story of this domestic or the story of most domestic violence murders should be if you see something, say something. And this is literally relegates that message to like a title card right before the credits, which is just sad. I, I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, I want to ask a Man, very, a very we... short question. Um, <laughs> why do people commit murder? <laughs> <laughs> it just I, I Why does they reading, do that? I remember reading Crime and Punishment when I was a freshman in college and Raskolnikov's inner monologue so perfectly spoke to my like non-murdering Jewish guilt that I have, <laughs> my anxiety that I have on a day-to-day basis and why I think I could never commit a real crime worse than like a bad take because it would it would just eat me a lot like i think i all these movies i just think about how fucking anxious the murderer must be the entire time and how that's no way to live uh and i (laughs) i recommend not doing it and the moral crime of murdering also is no way to live but mostly it's the guilt and the anxiety (laughs) wait yeah so david are you saying if you would feel fine about it and not feel guilty you would commit murder I, I can't say that. I just all I know is that uh, all I know is that the guilt that I felt over Look, if I could get away with it and wouldn't think about infractions, it, twice, I would do it in a <laughs> No, I I don't know. I just uh, it, it just seems like it would uh, it would be a lot. I always feel very stressed out for the killers in movies who are trying to elude the cops. And most of my like frantic stress dreams. Um, at least before my only nightmare was about. I like where this catch, is. I like uh, where this is going. Well, now the only nightmare that I have, which like breaches into PTSD territory, is is that my baby is falling off the bed and I lunge over and try to catch him. Oh yeah, um, I have I have those. Uh, Put your baby on the bed. Into, like a real. Well, just to play, not to sleep. But it's don't been, let uh, him get away from the fact that you have murder fantasies. <laughs> well, no, but my no, they weren't murder fantasies. I would say my dreams, my most common stress dreams, were me trying to run away from something. Usually, people with guns, um, you know, who were like in like in a terrorist like situation. There's a bunch of people with guns, and I'm trying to run away. But it's that same kind of anxiety of like always needing to escape from something. And I feel like uh, murdering someone is a pretty good way to instill that in you for life. Mm-hmm. Um, or as long as the rest of your life may be, at least in you know the free world. So uh, There are yeah, a lot of good true insane. crime documentaries about murder that might help you grapple with those questions, but uh, American not, not or whatever the fuck is not it. Not I feel it. like not, not wanting to murder people has served me well so far. <sighs> I will say that in terms of true crime documentaries, The Vow is the flower that keeps unfolding in weird ways that, on HBO, the vow, which the vow we should talk so about when it's over. Well, we can talk about that for Pandemic Check-In now. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, the, vow is, the Vow is so interesting because uh, seven episodes in, it seems like everyone on Twitter collectively came to the same realization or voiced a realization that they had all come to previously on their own time, which is that the show is terrible i mean it's like so but terrible in specific ways that they mentioned it's like so poorly paced it's so lumpy uh and uneven hbo must have like greenlit a bunch of these shows because i had the same criticism of mcmillions uh a uh, story that could have been told in two maybe three episode tops and just yeah absolutely that's definitely true of mcmillions i think with these true crime documentaries the specifics of how they came to be are also different because of like something like the Valak who was shooting for all this time. Um, you know, whose story were they trying to tell? It's but another one. That, it's another one that's out of order. The Val feels out of order. 
the vow feels very out of order. It's like the seventh week in a row of them talking about opening the fucking center in Vancouver. Uh, and they, <laughs> and they're just bouncing around. Drives me crazy. And there, are, it's, it's clear if you do the slightest a bit of digging under the surface that, uh, there are so many more damning stories, both about victims and about, um, Keith Ranieri. And like, how, first of all, how can any criminal mastermind be named Keith? Sidebar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, like, no, how no, you, no. How, That's the only thing I like about the vow is every step <laughs> along the vow, I remember like, uh, you know, wild, wild country or, you know, Heaven's Gate stuff that I've like read about. And I'm like, how is it people are still falling for? The dude that's like, I will give you enlightenment when you fuck me. Like, how is that still <laughs> a thing people, that a society keeps pushing Because forward? of the relationship. People need to be dominated in that way. Some people's well, personalities I'm, make sense. Wow. He, I mean, he's essentially doing an elaborate, you know, you can extrapolate it to like elements of fascism and things like that. But it really feels to me in this in the Nixium world, like it's just a big high school click gone wrong. And he is very good at manipulating people's insecurities. Um I mean, which is kind of what I like about it. You're right that you're right that it's paced wrong, and I kind of wish that it had all existed at once, so I could watch it all and then know which parts of it were like worthwhile. But every once in a while, it does hit on this sort of like weird narrative where they're trying to save like the daughter of a princess, and like they're all realizing they were in like this high school cult. And I'm like, yeah, man, this is what it looks like. This is like friendly Scientology <laughs> that that like leads into a weird snaking cult. Uh, but like, yeah, I think there's way too many stories going on. Maybe it should have been, I don't know. I don't know how to fix the vow because I don't know how the vow ends. Well, I know how it ends in life. It feels like it's the, you know, so much of this, the, the vow is about these people trying to share their story with the world. Like literally the machinations of them trying to publish this story and their own experiences with Nixium and New York Times and so forth. Uh, you know, this one woman trying desperately in a way that I really feel for you know, trying to get her daughter out of the clutches of this cult. Um, it's really harrowing. Uh, but it, it does feel like it's so mission driven that it's so, it, there's also this weird element that goes completely uninterrogated of, uh, the guy whose name I want to say is Mark, the main guy who made what the bleep do we know? Um, mm-hmm. who is like, they're trying to vindicate themselves and absolve themselves of their own involvement. And there's like this, underlying sort of uh, sub-narrative about forgiveness and, and reconciliation and like what what these people who help perpetuate Keith Ranieri's crimes, you know, known or unknown, um, can do to atone for them. And the show is so uninterested in engaging with that. And I think in large part, it's because those people are helping drive the show. Um, they were responsible for like hire, like, you know, getting the show made. I don't really know, but I, it's one of those things where I would much rather see a documentary about the making of the show than I would this documentary I'm watching this show make about this. You want the like I'm, Robert like, Green think, version of this documentary in a way. Yes. It's like making because, the well, documentary like the, and about the making of the documentary. Like Dick well, Johnson's dead. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean like the Robert yeah. Green documentary version of this or Kirsten Johnson version, I guess would, would be, would allow you to learn the story of Nixium, but also grapple with the peril of telling the story of Nixium. And this show, as entertaining as it is, and as fucking brilliant as its opening theme song, uh, its opening credit sequences set to its Sunlock song, but there's like something, they really nailed the tone for that. It gets me every week. Um, it, it, you know, it's, I've watched every episode, I'll watch it to the end. The story 
is compelling enough to pull you along, but it does really feel like it's only uh, serving one. Well, I don't want to say serving one master. It's a poor choice of use words. Given what's <laughs> in, uh, in this, but it, it, it's, it's, it's telling it's only master. one. Yeah, it has a kind of a, a, a myopic view of this story um, and of its victims. But uh, yeah, the vow. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to pivot out, I have one more question. Is there like a true crime series that you guys remember of the past like five or so years that hit for you in a good way? Good? Hmm. I, because every time I like wa- end, end watching one, I'm like, man, that's good. But that's not how I felt at the end of the Jinx. Most Jinx of the was bad too. Never... The Jinx was bad until the very end. I mean, which made the Jinx good. Made the Jinx good. You can still rewatch the Ooh, Jinx because it builds to that fucking thing. If you know it's building there, you're like, look at look at this guy incriminating himself through an entire docu series. Uh, most of the true crimes that I've gotten into has been podcasts. Like Dave, you and I have talked mm. about it in the dark. Um, yeah, which like, like great Curtis Flowers. Uh, yeah, I mean that's like kind of barely even true crime. That's just more like amazing journalism to witness in real time. Um, but I feel like true crime series, especially when everyone's like, that eh, could have been three episodes. I'm always like, I don't have time for this. Like I never watched Wild Wild Country. I didn't watch the Jinx. There's just always like other stuff that I feel more strongly about watching. I don't. I don't like watching multiple episodes about the same crime. I feel like that. It's just too yeah, like an unsolved too mysteries much generally. for me. I, I mm. like a documentary film. I just don't want to keep going and go. Well, unsolved mysteries is more enticing because at least the episodes are one-offs. But I found them to be kind of cheap in this reboot and more. I think I only oh, watched the uh, which one? The new unsolved mysteries. Dave liked it. Yeah. We talked a little about it on the podcast, Ooh, but uh, yeah. I guess yeah, I like it. Evil Genius, like I watched all of. Don't fuck with cats. I watched all of those. I think were shorter. Those were maybe Boy. three episodes each. That's the right amount. I only watched The Vow because I remember following the Nixium story when it was breaking. Yeah. Um, and unlike Big Smallville fan Crimson, here. Like, of course, yeah. Die Hard. Uh, Christian Kruk, Ride or Die. Allison Mack. No, thank you. Uh, but there is... Um, there is... I wanted to know more about this one story that I already found engaging. I think something like Don't Fuck With Cats or The Jinx of this, these people I don't know already I'm just sort of hit in the face by how lurid and exploitative these shows are. I really don't like the true crimefication of, of Netflix and these things. I could not, I could not be bothered to watch a second of Tiger King. I would, uh, there are so, 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 so many other things on TV I would rather watch. I don't know if that falls into the true crime category necessarily, but, um, it does. There's a lot of crime going on. Try to make a spectacle of these real life misfortunes. Uh, I tend to, um, I tend to not be interested in. But I think it was just because of the vow. I was like, I'm already hooked on the Nixium story, uh, and then I heard that theme song, and I was like, fuck. And then it started yeah. off with the what, and it has that filmmaking angle from the start with the what the bleep do we know guy. And I was like, oh man, I remember thinking that movie was so fucking nuts, <laughs> uh, and getting into it from there. Uh Let's go, uh, Pat Patches. What have you been doing this pandemic? Um, what, have, what have I been watching this week? Oh, uh, here, see if you can guess what I watched this week. When the moon hits your eyes like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Did you watch Moonstruck? I did. No. Oh, Moonstruck. What a great movie uh, to watch. Oh, my God. What a sweet, sweet film. I mean, just gooey and. 
I, I have, I, you know, I moved to New Jersey a year ago. Haven't been living in the city. First time I felt nostalgic for, for old mm. New York, for Brooklyn. Was why. Yeah. Can I get out my joke yes. that I was trying to? Yes. Have. Everyone, clearly, can we just everyone stand back? <laughs> joke incoming. Stand back and stand by. Remember I that need joke? absolute so, quiet. So let's. <laughs> Let's rewind the tape. You were when the moon, moon hits morning. your eyes yeah. like a big pizza And then you said, That's what did I watch? And I said, Michael Haneke's Amour. Uh, because it's Amour. so clearly okay. not what you watched, but it's called Amour. And, I was know, thinking of uh, Emmanuel Riva the other night because I mistakenly thought that she won an Oscar in my dreams. Um, uh, no, instead of winning an Oscar, she died. But thanks. <laughs> well, that's what the theme of this podcast is. Die. Mm. Um, (laughs) Anyway, I watched Moonstruck for the first time. Had never seen this Norman Jewison, John Patrick Shanley joint from the late 80s. Um, I don't know. I'm sure it's been talked to death. It's actually about to come to Criterion next month if you want a snazzy Blu-ray version of that. I'm sure it'll be on Criterion Channel eventually too. But I, you know, rented this movie because I wanted a, uh, a a blast of of joy, and it is. If you've never seen this movie and you've only heard of it uh, discussed as one of the great rom coms of all time, guess what? It's one of the great rom coms of all time, and it's kind of like uh, my big fat Greek wedding. If the jokes were not as stupid and the characters were deeper and more interesting, um, mm-hmm. there's not a ton going on in this no. movie. The the conflict is Cher is a widow. Her husband was hit by a bus and she's going to remarry because uh, why not? She's tired of being alone and she's settling for Danny Aiello, but he goes to take care of his uh, dying mom and she meets (laughs) her future husband's name is Johnny, but she meets her, his brother, Ronnie uh, played by (laughs) Nick Cage, who is 23 in this movie. One of his first roles. I think this movie came out the same year as raising Arizona. Um, But this, this is new Nick Cage. So, you know, he's just finding his footing. No, actually he's cutting all the prosciutto slicing it up. Just absolute whacked out performance by Nick Cage. That starts with him showing his wooden hand that he got smushed up in a, uh, his, his hand got cut up in a slicer and now he has a wooden hand. He's just losing his damn mind in this movie. And Cher is like, he's hot, I guess he's the, it's the greasiest performance I've ever seen. He's just dripping. Wait, but I feel like you have to prepare people who are used to like decades after like Nick Cage really losing his damn mind. Like this is him having real control over what he's doing. Like he's um, playing an out there character who is still a human being. You can imagine Cher, who's also really doing a lot of measure performance. Like you can imagine them having a real human connection. I. When was the last time you saw this movie? I mean, like a couple years ago. Okay. He, I, like, I can I've understand. I can understand. Writer, having... though, like it doesn't compare. It's kind of like Ghost Rider, except he doesn't oh pee Lord. as much fire. Uh, <laughs> and he, in fact, makes love to Cher and carries her into his bed and says, I'm taking you to the bed. Uh, but Cher, I understand why Cher's falling for him, because he is just uh, unre- relentlessly in love with her. He just, at sight, love at first sight. Like, it's so pure. He wants to be with her, and she wants to be with him. And the the low conflict is like them figuring out how to carry on this relationship and it's beautiful they go to the opera they cry at the opera they just have a damn good time and uh, it's a really good movie i mean the vips here are libya dukakis who share won an oscar i don't know share winning an oscar over um, broadcast news Ooh. i'm not sure about that one no 
She's not that I'm, good I'm, in this I'm, movie. I'm, she's very but genuine. Holly Hunter, and very Holly sure Hunter won an Oscar, what, like a year later? I, it, that's not the point. Broadcast News, that performance of Broadcast News is one of the greats of all time. But Cher Cher's movie, performance is, is also one of the greats you know, of all time. It's not. You know, no, no, Katie. You know that meme where it's like one really huge bicep clasping around <laughs> another <laughs> really huge bicep. Like, this is this is me and Matt Patches. Finally. You know, locking our giant biceps together. I mean, we have to be clear. Acknowledging what I know that you know in your heart, which is that Holly Hunter's performance in broadcast Finally. is one of the great... David and I can squash the, the female voice on our podcast. <laughs> no, but she... Oh, oh wait, my, my place no, I mean, is to point out ne- that's from The Predator. You're never <laughs> going to hear me say a bad word about broadcast news ever. Just want to say Cher is great in this movie. She is really good in this movie. It's funny. She, in the beginning of the movie, has like really curly long hair that's kind of gray. And she looks amazing. I mean, she yeah, really she is a beautiful amazing. person. And she has this kind of tender presence to her, even with the like ferocious Italian side that she's playing up, even though she's not Italian. Um, but then she gets a makeover and she also still looks fabulous. It's kind of a funny movie in that way. Like she doesn't need a makeover. She's beautiful. Um yeah. But Olympia, I mean, Olympia Dukakis is also not Italian, as oh, you can tell. But I gotta say, she is incredible in this movie. Definitely right. deserved winning an Oscar. She has a scene. I did not know that John Mahoney was in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. Frasier fame, playing the biggest New York jackass, like all too familiar. Uh, this character who just wants to have sex with people and is looking to come in for the night and go in out to bars all the time. And he's kind con- we see him twice, get uh, a drink thrown in his face because he's just that kind of douchebag. And my God, this New York person was so familiar and they have uh, Olympia Dukakis has a great scene with him where, you know, they have di- dinner, they wine and dine They're It's getting a little romantic. She has a husband, but he's off cheating on her somewhere. And they take a stroll back in the in brisk New York air that I could feel off the screen. Like I'm sure all four of us have been walking home at like 1 a.m. in blistering cold weather, um, and that was transportive. But then, they're also like right by the Brooklyn Heights Promenade, and like our working class people who could afford to live there. And you're like, oh, yeah, those wow. are the days. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, then, and then he, John Mahoney's like, can I come on in? And she's like, no. And he's like, oh, is your family home? She's like, no. I just don't want you to come in. And like, this is my <laughs> life, and I know what I want to do with my life. Get out of here. And he stands there in the cold like a slob. And it's one of the great, great scenes. I, I just absolutely loved it. And and yeah, this movie is just pure and so many good performances. I think I underestimated it, even knowing it was going to be great. So I would highly recommend going and seeing Moonstruck sometime if it's if it's a void in your movie going uh, history. Oh yeah, Moonstruck. Katie, what are you adding this pandemic check-in? Um, I have already talked about a lot of the stuff that I have watched, including Dick, Don- Don- Ugh, Dick Johnson is dead and the Small Axe. Um, or two parts of it. And I read a book. I think I mentioned Ooh. at the end of last week, but I hadn't finished reading Severance yet. Um, the Ling Ma novel that came out in 2018. But brace yourselves. It's about what happens when a pandemic comes from China to the United States and slowly shuts down the way that life is lived. Um, it's been pointed out over and over again how prescient this novel is. And it, there's kind of a, a funny way that it like overlaps with a lot of the things we know where like the streets are empty and you can walk through Times Square and people wear N95 masks, but also like there's an outbreak in an office and then people come back to work on Monday. You're like, Oh no. Okay. We got some things better than this. Um, (laughs) But there's a lot more to it as well. It's uh, written in first person uh, by, uh, uh, or the character 
speaks in first person, uh, has some sim- uh, background similarities to Ling Ma, the author, born in China. She was, um, you know, raised in the West in America, and the character is now orphaned. So she's kind of like disconnected with her family gone when this pandemic starts, and then kind of winds up being like one of the last living people in New York. It's a little bit of a zombie story. So, Dave, that might interest you as like a horror thing where like Ooh. the people who become fevered and get this fever um, sometimes die, but sometimes just kind of like continue to like go through the motions of their lives and like show up to work to fold clothes or like go to their bedroom and read books and and but they don't try to hurt the survivors so they're like a lot of them are just kind of like there wandering around in their lives which is really eerie um it's a great book it's been uh kind of on a lot of best of lists for years and in typical fashion i got to it really late um but it is great and a weird, like not an escapist read right now, but uh, if you feel like you can handle a story about a pandemic, I think maybe uh, it's not be Twitter. That's key. It's not Twitter. It's Although, not. Although, uh, Katie, I thought we were going to talk about your real source of entertainment for the last few weeks, which is doom scrolling on Twitter. <laughs> weren't we? Do we want to talk about? Weren't that? we going to open that let... can of worms and just understand yeah. why we're glued to this horrific moment and why you yeah, can't I mean, stop reading my... polls? You say my source of entertainment is doom scrolling as if you guys are all, you're not better than me. I'm not doom scrolling. You're, you're better <laughs> I delete the tweets. than I am. It's all uh, about using TweetDeck and only following five people covertly. I deleted Twitter off my phone last weekend. Um, the weekend, you know, the weekend of like the Coney Barrett event, super spreader nonsense. And then this past weekend when all the news was breaking about the president in the hospital, I couldn't stop myself and I kept it on there. Um, why, why can't we stop ourselves? I mean, it is a well, cultural event, right? And we don't have many of those, especially with movies gone. Everyone's talking about one thing at all times. You can't, you can't not look. I mean, for me, with when RBG died, I really ducked out because it was so depressing. And my Twitter feed was just a whole bunch of people talking about how depressed they were. And honestly, what's changed is that the debate was a shit show for Trump and then he got COVID and now there's a lot of ability to gloat. And then the polls come in that confirm that things are going badly for him, which is what I want to read. So I am checking back in to hear more of what I want to hear. Um, I think I do still have a a limit for the echo chamberness and need to log off at a certain point. Um, But basically like, we're all going through this crazy time. October is five days in. It's going to get more insane. So there's like got to be a place to experience some of it together. And uh, for me, Twitter fits that for a little while at least. Yeah, RBG's death didn't really have legs, did it? I thought it was going to be number one at the box office for two weeks, but it kind of disappeared <laughs> and it got... It's really the, uh, this is what the show is really about the now. the tenant of news events. <laughs> they did release RGB back in theaters. Perfect. Mm. RBG. RGB. No, RBG. RB- RBG. RBG. I, I I had this struggle when she was alive as well. RGB uh, is a color scheme. Yeah. Very important to work in the correct workspace and not in. I honestly, I think guy. maybe the most the most damning thing I could say about doom scrolling is that I've lost the ability to tell the difference between regular scrolling and doom scrolling. I think it's just scrolling that I do compulsively now all the time. Um, there's definitely. You can appreciate changes in the in the atmosphere. I I was definitely a lot less less interested in checking Twitter when R B G. You could died. just say her name um, too. Nope. Uh, <laughs> hashtag notorious R B G. Um, just because, yeah, I mean, it was confronted me with with something awful and somewhat unexpected, and uh, people were. We're speaking to her life in ways that were informative. I could learn all of that from reading an article on Slate and New York Times and reading around myself. I didn't need to 
uh, have the Twitter discourse around it. Um, and obviously, if you are a uh, filthy liberal like us, the activity and hubbub around Donald Trump getting COVID, a self a cell phone uh, of all cell phones, um, has a different tenor to it. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard to tell the difference these days. It's like you you wake up and you check what's going on, and that's just what you're doing. It doesn't really there's the flavor between doom scrolling and. Uh, just catching up, it's it's hard to taste the difference. Well, because last week, if you were, you know, a, a lot of people did this. I didn't because my husband told me about it in the middle of the night. But like, you do the thing where you wake up, you're like, oh wow, I wonder what happened while I was sleeping, and you check Twitter, and usually nothing has happened. And last week, the president had gotten COVID while you were asleep. Like once in a while, it pays off, and then that's what keeps you coming back to the slot. You can check funny. news instead of checking Twitter. You but could, like, then I won't see my friends yelling about it or making dumb jokes, or or I won't see like a whole bunch of out of context jokes from my friends, and I have to keep scrolling to figure out what it is they're talking about. Also, and that honestly, makes you I mean, mad at news outlets. Yeah. Like I, I've stopped like checking like Politico and CNN and what all of these places. Because I will check it, and it, like something not important will have happened, and we'll have like opinion. You know, could masks over the butt be just as effective? And I'm like, fuck this! Like <laughs> all of this. I mean, that's a dumb story. You should be mad at that. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, oh, there's always an equivalent. We've condemned 24 hour news probably on this podcast, but it, like life itself is condemned 24 hour news for being bad, and yet. We have found a new version of 24-hour news, which is just well, scrolling. The spectacle tonight of watching, you know, Trump leaving Walter Reed at the, you know, knowingly at 6:30 for the even though the movie time, started at seven hour slot, mm-hmm. right, right. Of, uh, but he has Air Force, he has Marine One to get there, so he doesn't have to worry about the traffic. But um, you know, leaving at exactly the time that he knew all the networks would be available to cover it. Um, that dumbass spectacle of him flying back to the White House and taking off his mask defiantly, you know, triumphantly as soon as he walked inside. And then, as Jim Acosta reported, coming back outside to do a second take with his mask off all the while. Uh, a, a real you know, David really Fincher felt. type. Also, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. he just walked up a flight of stairs. And, like, if you've ever, like, tried to, like, run with a mask on or anything, like, he had to breathe. Like, you know, you know why he did that. Also, he's an idiot. Yeah. And he has COVID. Uh, also, he's an idiot. But that felt like, you know, uh, that, that really felt like the media being played. I mean, all three major networks, in addition to all the 24-hour news channels, of course. But everyone on Twitter, too. Watching breathlessly. I can't blame, I can't blame yeah, 24-hour I mean, news. I can't blame the media anymore because but, everyone is kind of locked what, into this reading on Twitter. The, no, no, sure you that kind of spe- they're making they're making money off of it. Of that kind of spectacle is so much more tolerable Patreon, on dude. Twitter than it is on. Has nothing uh, to do with my Twitter patches. That kind of spectacle <laughs> is so much more tolerable on Twitter than it is on a news network because people on Twitter, unlike news networks, where they are still have their hands bound in this archaic and destructive idea of making things even handed, even when one hand is beating us to death. Uh, are all uh, you know, on Twitter? People are actually calling it for what it is. They are describing it accurately, describing it as the fascist Avita-like display of empty pomposity that it is. Whereas uh, on um, any of the news channels, they are doing their best to swallow their tongues and be like, "Well, this is highly unusual, and the president knows what he's doing in regards to the showmanship of it all." Uh, but here he is flying into the. I mean, it, yeah, it that's, is that's an intolerable. For I can't. I can't. Twitter to be better. I mean, it was interesting after the debates where the, you know, the networks are inclined to do that, but then call it a shit show anyway. So, you know, the, seeing the humanity break through that is not worth watching the TV news coverage, but it's interesting. But even then, they were like, it's a shit show 
And mostly it's Donald Trump who's responsible for that. Mostly. Yeah. But we're just going to call it generally a shit show. And it's like, no. <laughs> it was entirely the fault of one person and one side. And uh, with the media, that whatever. I mean, this is not an argument that needs to be made here because it's been made endlessly other places. Twitter. But They cast a whole Miss Marvel this week. <laughs> Jamie Foxx is back as Electro. I am so mad I can't use Twitter for Dave, what I want to use Twitter the, for. The, bat, the Batman was just delayed to 2022, as I'm sure you expected it would be. Oh, um, I mean, I'm fine with that. that. When did that happen? Uh, While we were recording? Right Right I now, yeah, it'll be old news by the time you hear Damn this. It. Uh, and uh, you don't want to get your breaking Matrix, news from David. But but Matrix Four is actually we'll see how this pans out is opening now four months earlier than expected on December twenty second, twenty twenty one. Well, they're actually in production in Berlin right now in, in a functioning democracy, so they're fine. That does it for this week's show. Uh, We'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I am on Twitter, not doom scrolling so much, just tweeting in one direction. So you can come for those if you want. At Mr. Patches. Um, and we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can listen to all the episodes. Also, you can listen to the episodes of Dave and I just finished recording new episodes of um, Republic City Dispatch, which is about the Legend of Korra on Netflix. If you If you need something good and well i was gonna say it's escapism but it's also about fascist rulers and um we win we win against the fascists every yeah, time it's a it's a pretty it's a miracle of a show um wait i also have to plug that this weekend is new york con speaking of virtual events oh, yeah. and um polygon has curated several uh panels at new york comic con this year including one that i did it's a 45 minute interview with paul ws anderson talking about mortal Kombat and resident evil and his new movie monster hunter um which just got moved up it's now coming out in december um so that's how that works and uh yeah that's gonna happen at new york comic con this week so look out for that monster hunter was transferred to a better hospital where its condition was upgraded to alive uh i am (laughs) i am tweeting only about one direction and you can find me doing that on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find me writing on IndieWire. Um, and uh, I'm doing a, a, not Paul S. Anderson, but a similarly throwback style interview this week for a piece that, I don't know, maybe it'll become the new Trank piece in terms of how long it takes for me to finish. I don't think so. Uh, anyway, what am I talking about? iTunes. Go on iTunes. Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. Uh, we'll read it on the show. It's great fun. Uh, oh, it's not my turn. <laughs> I mean, you could go wherever you want, but I, <laughs> I usually so I go I so excited to say what I was going to be tweeting about that I jumped on Dave. Dave, you go. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ta 70 but as I said before, that's probably not any good. I will, however, be on Polygon.com this weekend covering the Lost panel for Patches because I'm on a podcast called the Storm Lost Rewatch Podcast. We are rewatching Lost. We are in season four starting this week, which means we're like halfway through. We're halfway through our little project uh, rewatching Lost. It's going to be fun. Uh, we might be broadcasting again from a bunker, but come join us now, the Storm Lost Rewatch Podcast. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. In a twist, I will be tweeting about Jamie Foxx returning as Electro. So uh, please tune in for uh, zero informative takes on that. Um, you can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast for this week. We're talking about a bunch of the stuff uh, that's out this week, including Dick Johnson's dead and also the 10th anniversary of The Social Network. Um, Patches, that's your cue for your favorite line from The Social Network. 
hey kid, lost track of time. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought I saw you backing away from your microphone to give the um, Eduardo Savern yelling mark the emphasis oh, it deserved. I, I shouldn't do that. I, people are. This is the end of the podcast. People Protect your vocal cords. Uh, and you can find us, or you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can quote the social network at us, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was. In, in honor of theaters closing and remaining a 2020 of, and in honor of theaters closing and the remaining 2020 of streaming content, do you remember the first thing you streamed on Netflix? Falling Thanks for listening, down, and we'll be back talking to you down, next week. Falling down, falling down. I'll tell you when I'm done. Wonder what just found Pooba Pooba Wonder what just found My fair lady I'm done